again, thanks for being here this morning. Um, I'm not going to be here this weekend uh, because I'm going to be out of town. Uh, how many of you all have ever been out of town before? Anybody? Yeah, out of town. Uh, you know that feeling you get where you're, you're right up to the edge, you're about to leave, and you start going through that checklist of have I done this, have I done that, you know, and all those sorts of things. You start, you know, and it's, it, you know, we all kind of do that checklist thing every day, but, you know, but, but when you're traveling, it's like you've got two checklists. You've got the checklist for, for when you're leaving, the things you've got to take care of before you leave, and then you've got to take, then you've got to think about the things that you've got to take care of on the other end when you arrive. So Morgan and Bo and I are flying this afternoon to Charleston, South Carolina, where we will meet up with the rest of my family for my father's 80th birthday. So that's going to be a fun thing. Yeah, so, so Bobby Fuller, happy birthday. We love you. Uh, yes, his name is Bobby. My son's name is Bo, which is short for Bob because we couldn't afford that last B. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we're not really creative in my family. If you, if you want to know somebody's name, if you're, if for a male, you just yell Bob or Ben, uh, some form of Robert and Ben, you've got 90% of us covered. But we, uh, so we're traveling to Charleston today. The other purpose for my trip, though, is that I'm also going to be preaching this weekend at my, at my former church, Fairview Presbyterian Church in North Augusta, South Carolina, uh, where they will be celebrating their 75th anniversary. So I thought that, you know, that's kind of a cool symmetry there. You know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm preaching to a church in adulthood and one in adolescence when you look at it that way. But, uh, but it's going to be great. But, but I'll tell you, it's, it's not been a big travel year. I actually do a lot of traveling, you know, either to you know, mission fields or to, you know, connect with, uh, with mission partners or for conferences or for various church governance events. So I usually travel a fair amount, but because of the pandemic and everything, haven't been traveling much. And, and I don't think any of us have been traveling as much as we used to. And I'll tell you, it makes me a little bit nervous, not so much because I'm worried about the, you know, the air on the plane or mask or anything like that. I can handle that. I get nervous when I fly in that last few minutes before we land. Not because I'm, I'm not worried about crashing. I'm not worried about anything like that. What I'm worried about is do I have everything together? I am terrified because once I left a pair of sunglasses in a seat back pocket in front of me and I didn't realize it for hours later and they were gone. Who knows where they are? But, but I, I'm always very nervous. Have I forgotten something? Have I, what, you know, what, will I absentmindedly walk out of the airport without my bags? You know, did, did the baggage handler forget to put them on the plane? You know, where, you know, where's my stuff? Are all the people that I came with, are we, are we all together? That, unfortunately, we, we checked in late for our Southwest flight today, so it's unlikely that Morgan and Bo and I will be sitting together just because we're going to be probably spread out all over the plane. But, you know, do we have all of that stuff together? There's something about when you're, when you're getting ready to arrive, you want to make sure that you've, you've, got your, you've got your ground transportation, you've got your luggage together, you've got all your stuff. Um, and I just, you know, we've been connecting with my parents and my... Um, uh, and the rest of my family, you know, texting back and forth yesterday about my brother to pick us up from the airport and all those little details. You know, so, so you, you go on this journey and there's always at the other end all those details that you've got to make sure are taken care of. I remember when I was a camp counselor, the two things that every kid wants to know before his parents leave him for a month is where am I going to sleep and where am I going to eat? 
I mean, especially for, I don't know if that's like, if it's like that in girls' camps, but boys' camps, that's what they want to know. Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to eat? And so as a counselor, what you do is you show them where the dining hall is, and then you take them up to the cabin and you show them, you know, show them the cabin, let them choose their bunk. They choose their bunk and then you get out of the way because mama and kid are going to set up his space. But everybody wants to know, where's my space? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? And, and it's usually because they've been driving for a while or they, or they know they're going to be there for a long time. And this is going to be their home. And they want to know, where, you know, where's my stuff going to be? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to call home? Well, as the people of Israel journeyed and then wandered for 40 years, they finally have come to this point where, yes, that whole Egyptian generation, the group that left Egypt, has now passed on, and a new generation is rising up, or has, has been born, is, getting, is reaching the age of maturity, and they're going to be the ones to, take, to go into and take possession of the promised land. But before they could do that, they had to start setting out and, and, and taking care of some details. They had that punch list that they had to go through before they could actually settle in the promised land. Because everybody in, in Israel, this whole new generation of 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 wilderness kids want to know two things. What do you think those two things are? Where am I going to eat and where am I going to sleep? You know, you know God has been telling Moses and Moses has been telling us for, for a generation now that we are going to go and we're going to occupy this land. We've been fighting all along the way. We've been fighting with God all along the way. We've been, you know, we've been eating manna for a long time and yeah, it's great, but could we get something else, maybe? <laughs> I mean, we've heard them grumbling about that, and we've heard all these things, but they're ready to get there. But now they want to know, well, so what happens when we get there? You know, where are we going to stay? I mean, last night, sorry, Bo, if you're, if, I know that my son doesn't actually watch these, so I can say this. I mean, last night we were sitting here talking about getting to Charleston, and Bo's like, and we said, well, Bo, you're going to need to, put this, you're going to, need to pack this, you're going to need to pack this, because we're going to be at the beach this day, and we're, then we're going to get to North Augusta for this. And he's like, y'all never tell me anything. It's like, you know, we've only told you a hundred times every detail of this plan. But no, no, please, continue. Um, you never tell me, you, you didn't tell me we were, we were going to Charleston, why aren't we going to Columbia? It's like, blah, blah, blah. And, and Listen, we've told you. I've told you the plan. I've got to tell you again. Children of Israel, all teenagers. <laughs> Lord is saying, I told you once, guess I'm going to tell you again. As a matter of fact, the reason that we're not going to, well, I, I, our, so the plan for January is we're going to be studying the book of Joshua. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, why are we skipping over Deuteronomy? Because the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses saying, okay, you've heard this once, but I'm going to tell you again. <laughs> okay, that's why it's Deutero, second law. <laughs> um, but but, what we're, but the, the, the deal is, especially at the end of the book of Numbers, that the people are getting ready. They are on the edge again of the promised land. And they don't want to blow it like, their previous, like the previous generation did. Remember what happened in the previous generation. They got to the edge of the promised land. They were at Kadesh Barnea. Joshua sent, I mean, excuse me, God sent, Moses sent spies into the land to scout it out. They got scared. They failed God. They failed to trust him, and that's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. People always say, well, I guess they got lost. No, they were, they were told you cannot go in, so 
make yourselves comfy for 40 years till this whole generation dies out. Well, now here they are again, but they still want to know, what are, what's the plan? What are the details? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to live? Where's the place for my people? Where's the place for, for our future? And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. And this comes up in several different categories. Well, first of all, before we can go into, into the promised land, uh, a few things have to happen. But before we get into this lesson, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we come into this time today, as we, as we get close to the edge of the promised land and close to the end of our study of numbers, we just ask that you would enlighten us and that you would bless us as we, uh, as we move forward with the children of Israel into this, this new future. Now, Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So they are on, they're, in the, they're in the promised land. Where, and remember last week we, we had this terrible, terrible incident where the people rebelled yet again on the plains of Peor. Um, and here they fell into the, the idolatry of the Midianites and the Moabites. And we, we read that you know, the headline is that, is that they, they yoked themselves to, to, the, to the pagan god Baal, Baal, and began to indulge in the religion of Baal, which included everything from temple prostitution to child sacrifice. And it was perhaps one of the lowest points in, in Israel's life. As a matter of fact, I think it's, it's fascinating. Some of the worst things described in the Bible are described with great brevity. It's almost kind of like the worse it is, the shorter account it gets. Basically, in, uh, in, our, uh, in the scripture, in, in the book of Numbers, the whole incident of the idolatry at Peor is given as a headline. But we see incredible devastation following. What do we see in the crucifixion? If you go through all four uh, accounts of the crucifixion, all it says is he was crucified and he was crucified. There he was crucified, he was crucified. There's no description. There's no detailed analysis. There's nothing that, that gives us a mental picture of the crucifixion. It is just brief, and by its brevity, we understand the horror of what happened there. At Peor, we understand the, the horror of the idolatry and the depth of the idolatry when we, when we really look at it in context and see the results and the brevity. And so, so we had this incredibly horrible incident of rebellion and idolatry, this, this national tantrum and apostasy. But after that, you know, thanks to, you know, thanks to um, uh, the son of Aaron, uh, excuse me, the grandson of Aaron, who, um, of Phineas, who, who showed great faith, and because of the prayers of Moses, the people were spared once again. So as they, you know, at, coming off of that event, they're finally ready to go into the promised land. Well, what do you do before, you know, what do you do before you get, uh, before you, you move out on a trip? Does anybody remember the old movie Home Alone? What's the whole premise of Home Alone? You got the one kid who gets left behind on a family vacation. How does that happen? They failed to make an accurate head count when they were in the van to the airport. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, the movie's 30 years old, no spoilers anymore. Um, but what happens is one kid gets left behind. What happens when one kid left behind? If, if you were on a road trip and one of your kids got left behind, would you just say, that's all right, that's no problem, we've got others? 
Of course not. You do move heaven and earth to go get the one kid that you left behind. Well, the reason that you know you left a kid behind is not just because you know him by face, it's because you've counted. And so what we see is in chapter 26 that there is a new census taken of Israel. This is a head count. This is to make sure that everybody is accounted for as we go into the promised land. But we also see that this is done for the purpose of later dividing the land. Um, and so, uh, and, and so we, you know, there is going to be an allocation of space, and part of that is going to be based on the numbers of people in the various tribes. And, and so, you know, as this, you know, as this moves forward, we, you know, we know that it's important to do this because the previous generation has died out. You know, as we see, you know, it says in uh, verse 64, But among, the, uh, among these there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. What that means is that except for Joshua, except for Caleb, except for Moses and Aaron, there was nobody left from that original generation. And everybody who was listed on that previous census is gone. So, if you, so, so I think we can safely say that if we were to look at a census of San Antonio from 200 years ago, there's nobody left alive on that census. Same sort of thing. So part of what God is expressing here through his word is the totality of this, of this generational shift, with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and, and excuse me, even Aaron's gone at this point. Moses is really the last man standing other than Joshua and Caleb. But so we have these, so we have these two left. But because this, it's a whole new generation, this new generation doesn't understand exactly how this is going to happen. And you know, as you can imagine, when there are issues of land and inheritance and space, there are always complications. Um, that is why lawyers exist, because because if you have two pieces, if you have two people and one piece of land. And you say, we're going to divide it in half. People are going to dispute on where that half line is. You know, I have done way too many uh, funeral services and met with too many families where there were disputes about who gets what after, you know, after mama dies. Who gets the family Bible as mom, after mama dies? Who gets the farm? Who gets the ranch? Who gets the house? Who gets the car? All this, all this who gets what? And sometimes that is complicated by the fact that you have, this person didn't have an heir, this person did have an heir. What about cousin Tilly or what about this person? And, and what do you do? It's even more complicated when there are in-laws and outlaws involved. And, and how, do you, how do you divide this up? And, and one of the first things we run across in this, in this issue of who's going to live where is the question of, uh, this group of women called the Daughters of Zelophehad. If you look at chapter 27, listen, this is an interesting story. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Now remember, Joseph, the, the, the second in command of Pharaoh, who was the son of Jacob, he had two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh, and whenever you hear about the, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the half-tribe of Ephraim, that's because Joseph had two sons, and to sort of balance things out with the Levites, who weren't going to get land and stuff like that, you had this sort of weird Hebrew arithmetic that happens tribally to make everything work out. 
So you've got these two half tribes, and this, this subgroup, this, this family from the tribe of Manasseh has come forward with a sort of a legal inheritance dispute. And they stood before Moses, all these women who were in this part of this family, they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. Remember the group that got swallowed up in the ground because they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Um, but, for, but he died for his own sin. Okay. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Now, this seems like, you know, okay, that sounds pretty fair to us now. But we are looking at this through a filter of 6,000 years, really about 4,000 years of history. And we have to, you, you know, the, the question here is, should these women, these daughters, even though they are the blood of Zelophehad, who is a descendant of Manasseh, should they get any property in the promised land because, well, frankly, they're not men? I mean, here, here we have one of the, one of the earliest, um, I, I guess, really, women's rights cases tried and recorded in human history. Because in this time, the default position was, oh, those are just women. They'll marry off into some other tribe, and, and, they're, you know, and, and even though they're the only heirs of their father, that, his name will be erased. He should have known better. He should have had sons. And so, and you, you really, I mean, you know, we look back, and, and, we, and of course we look at it in a, in a bit anachronistically, but, but we look back at it and we think, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair to these women. I mean, for them, they were really asking something somewhat radical. Other cultures were not friendly to women. The, the Hebrew culture up to this point had not been necessarily pro-women's rights. Now, they maybe weren't as harsh as some others. But here you have this, this group of women making an appeal to say, well, wait a minute. We, we, you know, we want to honor our father, but we also believe that you know, because of him, that, that we have, you know, we want to see his name carried forward, and we believe that we are legitimate heirs to his, you know, to his inheritance. And so, you know, what's interesting is, and, and look at the way Moses handles this. He doesn't say, you are right. Women are equal too. Women are people too. You should be joint heirs. You should have just as much inheritance right as the men. No, what does he do? Huh. Women inheriting land. That's a crazy idea. I better talk to God about this one. <laughs> and, and that's what he does. He goes and he talks to the Lord. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to them uh, to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. That is not a line you're going to find on the Code of Hammurabi, in the Code of Hammurabi. That is not a law you're going to find on Egyptian stella. This is not something you're going to find on a tomb wall in, in, you know, somewhere in Mesopotamia. This is different. God is, God is saying, 
I mean, I'm, we're a long way from our understanding of equality under the law here. But what we see here is a pretty significant innovation in human history. And I, just, I, I think it's worth noting that because, because what it says in the bigger picture of things is that God does see and does notice the people that other people think are unimportant. And so I just want to note this because this story of the daughters of the Lohad I think it's one of the most inspiring and encouraging passages for women uh, in the Bible. And, and on the one hand, it exalts their courage. I mean, it was pretty gutsy for them to say, wait a minute. You know, you know, we are as much our father's heirs as our brothers are or would have been. So don't just pass it off to some cousin or something until you check with us first. And so this is a very, significant, uh, a very significant thing. And if he has no brothers, then she'll give his inheritance to his fathers. There's a whole plan laid out here. But this is a significant episode because it really does sort of set up some of the, some of the case law now for what will be inheritance issues. And so, so uh, you know, we begin this section of getting ready to, you know, by saying, you know, you know, the whole tribe of Israel, the whole people of Israel matters. Well, so let's move on to another episode. I'm just going to be kind of hitting some highlights in these chapters as they move in. The second is the question, the question of succession. You know, Moses was in a really bad position because remember when he, uh, a few weeks ago, when we talked about him uh, striking the rock at Meribah, um, that was pretty bad. He, he rebelled against God. He, you know, he, he showed that he was willing to, to, sort of, uh, to, to sort of disobey God somewhat casually. And for that, God said, you will not enter the promised land. Well, somebody's got to lead the people into the promised land. Who was that going to be? Well, that person was going to be Joshua. Joshua would be, Joshua would be, the, would be the new leader of the people of Israel. So if you look in chapter 27, beginning in verse 12. Um, let's see. Yeah, sorry. One more page over. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into the mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Now again, that doesn't mean today. You're not going up and you're not going to be taken today. But this is as close as you get to the promised land. You're going to go up, you're going to see it, and while you're there just to kind of solidify the gravity of this moment while you're there. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word, word in the wilderness of Zen where the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as the holy waters before their eyes. So Moses spoke to the Lord, said, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be seen, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him to stand before Eleazar the priest, uh, and, you shall, and, excuse me, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with, interesting, some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 
And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At, the, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So what we see in this episode is that it's not, now time, the time has come for God to name Moses' success, successor as the leader of the people. But, you know, what, you know, there's some things about this succession that are the same and th- some things that are different. For example, what was the same? Well, Joshua is going to be the man in charge. He is the one who is anointed to be the leader of Israel. But there is something different. Number one, he's not going to take over immediately. Okay, Moses is still here. He's, this, this is a succession plan. This is not a coronation. But also this. He's not going to be speaking to God directly like Moses did. I mean, again, it's interesting. He's been given some of the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, some of the Spirit of the Lord is awesome. There is no valueless portion of the Spirit of the Lord. But what God is saying is that I am going to give him certain access, certain gifts, but I'm not going to give them all the same way I gave to you. Moses is unique in that sense until who? Jesus. It's not till the New Testament that anybody is referred to as a prophet like Moses except Jesus. Because Moses kind of gets the whole package. Moses represents both secular and spiritual authority. But what happens in the transfer to Joshua is that you have some distinction, not separation, but a distinction between that separation, between that secular and that spiritual authority. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth noting because you don't have Joshua doing the same things that Moses did. I mean, he's not the lawgiver. He does reinforce the law. He enforces the law. He does all those things. But, but there is something very important being established here. Can you, can you think of what that might be? What is being established here? Well, to some degree, there's the understanding that the secular authority does not speak for God. Not all the time. Sometimes it does when it's in alignment with God. But, there's, you know, but there will, from this point on, be a tension. And there still is a tension you know, between secular authorities and spiritual authorities among, among believers. You know, it's, it, it is fascinating. You know, one of the most significant things that happened when Henry VIII pulled the Church of England out of the Roman Catholic Church is that he declared himself, he declared the king, the head of the Church of England. What did that mean? That meant that he declared himself Pope of England. He, you know, no longer, the Pope is no longer the head of the Church of England. I am the Church of England. I mean, it's kind of like when Louis XIV declared himself the state. I am the state. I mean, he invested all in one person. And, and so, and, you know, we see how Henry VIII turned out. But anyway, I mean, this is, I mean, this is a significant event. And, we, and we'll see how this kind of plays out in, in January and February when we're talking about Joshua a little bit more. And, and I don't want to diminish Joshua's role. But we do see an interesting sort of almost, almost sort of Trinitarian distinction forming. Because, again, 
you know, always linked. But, but what is the distinction here? And I think it's, I think it's worth noting. Um, but Joshua, I mean, Joshua is, is no slouch. He will still be effectively the, I mean, he is the, the leader. And he goes and he asks the questions. But even Eleazar, now see what's interesting, Eleazar is not automatically made a prophet. He's still a priest. How does he get the word of the Lord? What does it mean that, to get them through the Urim? You remember what the Urim are? The Urim and the Thummim? Yeah, the stones. <laughs> you know, he's going to consult the Urim and the Thurim. You know, the, the casting of lots as we see in the book of Acts. And so, he's, so he's not automatically a prophet like Moses either. So, there, so it's, what is interesting is that there is, there is a, a, a sort of a change in this relationship between God and the leadership of the people to distinguish these things a little bit. And I think part of that is because God wants to remind the people that no, you know, Moses was not God, Joshua will not be God, only God is God. And God is ultimately the king and ruler of his people. And so this succession, this succession episode is worth noting for a couple of different reasons. Um, but we're going to be talking about Joshua a lot, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, in chapters 28 through 29, we see a lot of directions about offerings. Again, how are we going to continue to worship uh, in the promised land when we're not on the move all the time, that sort of thing. Um, about the keeping of vows in, in chapter 30. Um, but then we come to chapter 31. And what we see in chapter 31 is sort of a, a return to the issue of this, uh, to this issue of idolatry. And I think, you know, a, a very significant episode when it comes to setting, up, setting the stage for what's going to happen as they occupy the land. Because what happens in chapter 31 is Moses' last military mission. And, and basically this mission, we, talked, we touched on this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Ba- Moses' last military mission is to finish this business with the Midianites. The ones who, who were so destructive and so corrosive and corruptive to the children of Israel, leading them into these heresies, these Moabite, these Canaanites, these ba- Balian heresies. So if you look at chapter 31, verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, and afterward you shall be gathered to your people. This is going to be Moses' last military adventure. His last, his, his last mission as leader of the, of the Israelites, or his last military mission, is to go and finish this business with the Midianites. This is retribution for the Peor apostasy. The Midianites were this group of nomadic tribes who inhabited the deserts on the fringes of Canaan. They were associated with the, the um, Amalekites, the Ishmaelites, the Moabites. And remember, it was, you know, it was their god, Baal, Molech, who is, the, you know, who is the gatherer of children, the one to whom they offered child sacrifice and everything else. Um, you, you'll see in this chapter several inst- references to Balaam, who is, who is remembered throughout history as the great seducer of Israel to, to pagan worship, to adultery against God. Um, and so you have in, this, in chapter 31 this brief, this fierce military campaign. Moses gathers 100 elite soldiers from each, excuse me, 1,000 elite soldiers from each tribe of Israel. So he goes in with an army of 12,000 men against the Midianites. Balaam is killed in the attack in verse 8, along with the five kings of Midian. 
Now, it's interesting. That's reminiscent. Now, again, five kings. This is reminiscent of the five kings of Canaan in Genesis 14. Do you remember that episode? Is anybody familiar with that episode? Those were the kings of who? Of like the, the kings you know, around Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and what's interesting about that is that this area where this is happening is where Sodom and Gomorrah took place. This is, I mean, we're in the same neighborhood for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the same place Abraham de defeated those five kings back in the day. Um, and you remember that Moab and, Am and Belama, Be Belami was his name, the, the incestuous children of Lot were the patriarchs of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So this is all happening on the same real estate. All these things happening in the same places. So Moses sends these 12,000 against the Midianites. Balaam is killed. The army wins the battle and conquers the territory. But then Moses gets angry. Why is that? Because God wanted the, wanted the Midianites not just defeated, not just contained. He wanted them purged. This is a group of people under the curse of God. Now, that strikes our bones, it strikes our hearts with unbelievable weight. The idea that the loving God, the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would see so much evil in a group of human beings that he says, neither they nor their children can be allowed to live. And you know, God does not need me to defend or apologize for him or anything like that. But what, what I do have to do, and what I have to do as a pastor of this church and as a preacher of the gospel and as a, as a student of his word, is say that whatever it was, they, whatever it was God considered, whatever their sin was, God considered that sin so serious that their existence had to be wiped out from the earth and left only as a memory. You know, the one who sees the heart and knows the mind, I mean, it's, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, what, what makes God that mad except, I mean I, I mean, I know idolatry does, and I know that apostasy does, and I know all those things do, but, but for him to say no more, I mean, it, I, it, it hurts my heart, I hope it hurts your heart because, you know, we don't, I mean, I mean, I, the reason it hurts my heart is out of empathy because, you know, in, in many ways, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, the only difference between me and a Moabite is a difference in degree. Their sins were just a lot worse than mine, but I'm not without sin. And maybe they're not. Maybe they're just different. But whatever it was, God took their sin so seriously that he has Moses purge them. Well, Moses got mad because that's not what the people did. Moses said to the people, have you let the, all the women live? Well, wait a minute. What about the women and children? We always let them live, right? Not this time. Have you let the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came, upon, came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male... Among, uh, kill every male among the little ones, all the men are already dead, and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. That sounds brutal in and of itself. But why is that? 
you know, what, you know, what are they, again, what are they saying? We're, we're not, God's saying we are, we are purging this from the earth. And, you know, it's kind of an understanding of ancient biology and genetics and things like that. You, you strike the man, the woman is a vessel, that sort of thing. They, they weren't thinking in terms of genetics and things like that the way we think. What this does is it effectively wipes out the Moabites as a people. It effectively, or the Midianites as a people. And they plunder and divide the, um, the, the spoils. And, I mean, we just see what is the brutality of war and the brutality of sin and the brutality of all that. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make excuses or anything like that. I'm not trying to make this palatable to anybody. I just want you to take it seriously that it happened. And when God says, I'm serious about something, he means it. Because I think that is the lesson here. Um, but this is, you know, this is, in this story, this new generation learns that God will give them the victory and that he means what he says. For this new generation, this is their first huge victory. Because if you look at chapter 31, 49, it says that there was not a single Midianite, I mean, there was not a single Israelite loss. 12,000 men went into battle. 12,000 men came back. Today's Veterans Day. Let the weight of that fact and, and, and the weight of Veterans Day just sit on you for a moment. This was an unqualified victory. This was a demonstrative victory for God to show, to show this is my power in action. And this is the last campaign that was headed by Moses. And so, so this is the start. This is the military footing. This is, this is what happened. This is the setup for going in to conquer the promised land. Your victory will be total. Think about that. I mean, so again, th this, is, this is your, your preseason, your last preseason game. And you absolutely crush the competition. Does that make you more or less confident going into the season? More confident. I'm a lifelong South Carolina fan. We win one game in the season, we're like, we're going all the way, baby. And we lose the next 10, you know. It's, but, uh, but again, this is, I mean, this is setting them up for the future. What else does he set up for the future? In chapter 32, we see that um, we start to see some of the first allocations of land, and particularly those to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Now, what happened is that these tribes, these three tribes, they were looking around. They're still on the west side, of, on the west bank, on the west side of the Jordan River, and they're thinking, you know what? This place is pretty nice. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know what's on the other side of the river, but I kind of like it here. The plains are nice. There's good grazing land. We're, we're herds people. Let's, you know, you know we're, we're not really into the mountains and the hill country on the other side of the river. And so they came to Moses and asked him to go to God on their behalf and say, what if we stay on this side of the river? On, so here's the River Jordan. And what the, what, the tri, what the three tribes were asking is Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. This is the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were saying, well, why don't we stay on this side? And, and the deal they made is we will still send our military component with the rest of the people to help them win uh, the, rest of, the rest of the promised land. And then when we're finished that campaign, once, once everybody else is settled, then we'll, then we'll bring our army back. 
but we'll, we'll go ahead and claim this land here. Um, what, what do you think? <laughs> and, uh, and Moses said to them, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle for the, before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you. Then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. In other words, if you send your, if you send your armies, your battalions, with us into the promised land, you can have this land, but you don't get out of the fight. You're still a part of that in every way. And the, and the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the tribe of, half-tribe of Manasseh said, deal. We'll do that. And so, and so that, became the, that, that became the arrangement for those three tribes. Which, I mean, it, it really in some ways kind of, I mean, sort of even before Israel was established, expanded the borders of the kingdom or, or of the country. Um, so again, we're making, you know, where, where are we going to live? Where are we going to eat? Um, then the next thing, the recounting of Israel's journey from Egypt in chapter 33, 1 through 49. Moses again rehearses, uh, rehearses the things that have, uh, that have happened. And this is so important. This is why the 175th celebration here, why the 75th celebration at Fairview, you know, why birthdays, family reunions, all these things, that's why these are important. We need to know our history. We need to know where we've been so that we know where we're going. Now, David Rogers, uh, who many of you all know, a uh, member of this church, he spoke in the men's ministry the other night. He said, he said you know, history is, is a wonderful thing, but you've got to make sure it, you know, that it is a guidepost, not a hitching post. You know, and I think that's important. Moses doesn't keep, re- he doesn't recount the history of Israel to make it a hitching post, but rather to make it a guidepost to say, this is what God has been doing for you. This is what He's done for you. This is why you can trust Him. That last battle that we just fought against the Midianites, that's the tone. That's, the, that's what you can expect from God. Now what's sad is that they, like we, often have to be reminded of what God has done for them because otherwise we begin to think, well, God can't do that. Well, hasn't God been faithful to you in the past? Yeah, but, but that was yesterday. What's he done for me lately? And the whole issue surrounding, I mean, not only chapter 33, but the whole book of Deuteronomy is all about Moses reminding the people of what God has done for them. You know, whenever the law is brought up by Moses, when in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, how does he, how, what's the preamble? to the law. I mean, the preamble to the Constitution is what? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure tranqu- uh, domestic tranquility, you know the, you know the rest. Um, that's the preamble to our Constitution. What's the preamble to the, to, the, to the Israelite Constitution? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It begins with that memory. But it's not I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Stay in Egypt or stay right beside Egypt. What it's meant to say is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out, out of the land of Egypt and we are going places. You, think, you thought you'd never get out of Egypt. You thought you'd never break orbit, but I have launched you beyond the atmosphere. It's really an exciting way for God to set them up for success. Um, following that, um, uh, following that, he, 
Then you hear the command in chapter 33, verses 50 to 56, the command to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figure stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess it. Verse 55, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Yeah, so you're about to go into the land of Canaan. I've given it to you, but you have to claim it. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating. God, the, the gifts that God gives, are all, they are authentic gifts, but he wants us to invest in them. I was reading, it, it's fascinating, I was reading, it's actually in the book of Joshua, and we'll come back to this when we study Joshua, but there's a fascinating story about, so half of the half-tribe half of, half of Manasseh ends up over here on this, side of the, uh, on this side of the river, but you see another half of the half-tribe of Manasseh, so kind of the quarter tribe or third tribe of Manasseh. I don't know. I, I'm no good at math. Um, they stay on this side. And what they ask for is they, they want some of this. In, in the book of Joshua, they see that there's sort of some unclaimed hill country right here. And there's nobody living there. No, well, no Israelites. <laughs> there are people there. Um, there, are no Israel, there are no Israelites there. And they say, so they go to Moses and they say, hey, we like the hill country. You know, we, you know, we, 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 think, we think that's kind of wasted land. And, and think about it. What, you know, if you're an ancient farmer, an ancient herdsman, what do you want? You want the flat land where the water flows through. What, what are you going to do with the hill country? Well, what it says is that, is that uh, Joshua tells them, he says, it says, well, you know, we've checked with God. Yes, you can have it, but you're going to have to clear it. You're going to have to develop it, meaning terrace it. You're going to have to make it useful. And what did the Manasseh, Manassites say? Done. They invested. They became pioneers. And it's fascinating. You know, God, God does not give these gifts without our investment. Now, it's, not that he's, it's not that we have to pay for them. He's already given them the promised land. But he's saying, you're going to have to invest in this. You're going to have to put something in it. You're going to have to get some skin in the game. You know, we, so often we hear about God's amazing grace, and we just want to, like, we receive it, and then we put it on a shelf. Like, like a sweater you got for Christmas that you kind of like, but you're not really crazy about it, so you put it in the closet in case you ever need it. That's not God's grace. God wants us to invest in the gifts that He's given. He wants us to develop them. He wants us to cultivate them, even to the point of clearing out the hard stuff. Chapter 34 is all about the land, uh, uh, all about the, the boundaries of the land that He gives. And then, just kind of hustling through, I'm sorry, I, I spent too much time on other stuff. In chapter 35, we come to two, two really important sections about special types of settlements that, uh, that, uh, that uh, God designates. The first are what are called the Levitical cities, so the cities of the Levites. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of the book of, of, uh, of Numbers, the, the Levites, the, clan, or the tribe of Moses and Aaron, was supposed to be that special 
church brigade. <laughs> they were the ones who were, they were in charge of the tabernacle and the temple, and they were not counted in the census. They were not going to be given a piece of land. So where are they going to live? Are they going to keep living in tents? Are they all going to live around the tabernacle? No. What's going to happen with them is they are not going to be given these huge swaths of land, but rather they are going to be given specific towns in each, uh, in, in each district, in each tribal area, where they will have, uh, that they will have as their own place to live. Now, which is, and, and I think that's a very interesting uh, I think it's a very interesting proposition. The Levites were expressly excluded from inheriting land. Nevertheless, they had to live somewhere. Again, where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Um, and arrangements, you know, and as arrangements for the other tribes were discussed, so now the, Levi, the Levites get their piece. And what happens is that they are given these 48 cities. They're called cities. In reality, they're all little villages. And they're, and they're given the immediately surrounding land as grazing land. So, you know, think about it almost like a parish manse. <laughs> you know, this is, you've got your local pastor, and this is, the, this, is the church, this is the church house, and he gets a little, he gets a little plot of land to garden in. This is like in the, you know, 17, 1800s. This is, this is your manse. This is your parsonage. Listen to what um, uh, Dennis T. Olson says. He says, like the Transjordan tribes, the Levites are a borderline group within Israel. They cross boundaries and they do not fit neatly into one category or even one place. They live among every other tribe but are not really part of them. They are clergy but not, not all full priests like the son of Aaron. They are a tribe but not one of the twelve tribes. They live in designated cities with surrounding pasture and yet they have no allotted tribal land. The social and economic structure that numbers envisions for the Levites mirrors their function as a buffer zone or a boundary around the holy sanctuary. They mark the presence of God at the center of the community and Israel's 12 tribes around the outside. The Levites both protect the boundary and cross the boundary between the divine and the human, between God's holy love and the people's sinful rebellion. The scattered presence of the Levites throughout the land of Israel suggests that the presence of God will likewise be distributed over the whole land. There will eventually be a special intensity of God's presence in the temple in Jerusalem, but the presence of God eludes capture in any fixed stru structure or place. God is greater than any house in which God's presence dwells, and the scattering of the Levites is a sign of God's wide presence throughout Israel. Now remember, the tabernacle, the temple, can only be in one place. But the Levites are everywhere. And why are they there? They're there to keep the people connected to God. You know, it's, why do we not have just one huge mega, 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 mega church? Why do we instead like, you know, smaller churches like this one or, you know, Fairview or Hebron or the little churches that I've served in the past, Buffalo Presbyterian Church and in Farmville, Virginia, had 16 people. Why do, you know, why do we like little churches like that? It's because everywhere they are, they're a reminder you know, of God's presence in those places. You know, what was the temple? The temple, yes, the temple was the house of God. But was God contained in that house? No. The temple was a sign that pointed to God's spiritual reality in the world. So you got a temple in the world, that means God's in the world. You've got, a, you've got Levites in the village, that's a reminder, oh yeah. We, we belong to God. We're God's people. We're Yahweh's people. 
And so you had this, this distribution of the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe of Moses and Aaron, throughout the land. So that's one category of special city that was established. Um, the, one, the, the last category of special city to be established is the city of refuge. And we're, you know, we're out of time. I'm going to pick that up next week. It's the cities of refuge. We'll just remember, outline, not a contract. I didn't promise I was going to get through this today. Um, but, uh, but we'll talk about the cities of refuge next week. But, but again, keep in mind the, the big picture here. The point, of, you know, the point of the book of Numbers, if you go back to the beginning, was to really approach some of the logistics, not only for the journey through the wilderness, but also for the entry into the promised land. So what, what's happening? Moses, the, plan, the plane is getting let, ready to land. And the voice is coming from the cockpit saying, all right, it's time to put your, seat cha- your, your, your tables up in their upright and locked position. Set your seat up. It's time to, you know, it's time to get your, you know, it's time to get all your stuff together and put it away. It's time to get ready for landing. Make sure you got everything because we're about to get there. You know, I mean, I actually don't mind. I love actually flying. I love flying. I love air travel. Um, I enjoy the, you know, I enjoy working. I enjoy putting on my headphones and kind of zoning out and being there for a while. It's very nice. It's very relaxing to me. But when I, but when we get there, well, that's exciting. And eventually, the flight attendants and everybody else says, "Okay, sir, you got to get off the plane. Um, you know, you can't stay here forever. You can't be on the journey forever. At some point, you arrive." And what Moses is doing is he is prepping the cabin for landing. He's prepping them to get ready and say, you're almost there. Let's get ready and let's, get, let's go on in. All right, we'll finish up next week with numbers. Thank you very much and let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this time again to talk about your plans for your people and your truth. And we ask you now to just give us a sense of... of of your preparation. Lord, you told us to have no fear because you are going before us, that your Father's house is, is full of mansions prepared just for us. And in the same way, you prepared the land, you prepared the, the processes, you prepared everything for the people of Israel. Help us to connect those dots and see your providential hand moving throughout history and in our lives individually. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.